good to see you here at our teaching service. And um, we are currently looking at Israel and the church. Next week, I'm going to be teaching on the festivals of Israel, the spring festivals and the autumn festivals, tabernacles and Passover and Pentecost. And we'll be looking briefly at those uh, festivals of Israel and not only will be explaining what they represent, but also how they are fulfilled in the gospel and Christ. So that's next week, the festivals of Israel. But this week, we're going to have a look at the subject of Israel and the promised land. Israel and the promised land. Before we go in, if we could have the first slide, please. Before we go in uh, to a little bit more detail, I just wanted to recommend a book for you um, on this and other topics. It's an excellent book by Derek Prince called The Destiny of Israel and the Church. So, The Destiny of Israel and the Church. It's a very readable book. It's not a big book. Uh, you can get it from the bookshop or um, Amazon as well. Uh, do stock it. So, if you really want to get a little bit more detail, because I can only uh, look at things and and, and highlight things at sessions like this. I can't go into too much detail. These are more introductory types of sessions at the teaching service, but this is definitely a book. If you've got questions or you think, I need to learn more about this and Israel and the church, then there is um, an excellent book for you. Well, before we get into Israel and the promised land, I just want to do a little bit of recapping on some of the things that we've taught in the last couple of weeks, specifically Israel and the church, because when we start speaking about the promised land, I just need to make sure and remind you, those of you who are regulars, and maybe you weren't here last week, um, what we're talking about when we're talking about Israel. So if you could have the next slide, please. Last week, we looked at what the word Israel means when we read it in the Bible. And we said that Israel can mean two things and it depends on the context. And the classic verse that I brought to you was Romans chapter 9, verse 6. And there Paul is talking about Israel, and he's explaining why not all Israel received the gospel. Not all Jews were getting saved. In fact, the Gentiles by this time were totally outstripping the Jews. The Gentiles were coming into the, into the kingdom in their thousands, and the Jews less and less so. And uh, Paul needs to explain that. And remember, all of these sessions are up on the internet. You go to our media page, you scroll down to series, press on series. You'll see Israel in the church, press on that. And then all of the teachings of this series will be there for you to go through if you've missed one or you want to go back. And Israel chap uh, uh, and Romans chapter 9, verse 6 says this, But it's not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are Israel. So he uses it there in two phrases. They're not all Israel who are Israel. What does he mean? Well, as we looked at last week, the first way that Israel can be used in the New Testament and Old Testament is the nation and people of Israel. So in other words, those that are physically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the physical nation, the physical people of Israel. Now, that Israel, that includes everybody that is 
born Jewish, all right? And so that would be unbelieving Jews and believing Jews. They're still Jews, aren't they? And so when we look at the Bible, we have to say, is this word Israel being used about the whole of the nation of Israel, believing Jews and unbelieving Jews? And that's the first way it's used. But the second way that it can be used is in a more limited way, speaking about God's truly believing and saved people. So that's why Jesus could say about Nathaniel, a true Israelite in which there's no guile. What do you mean a true Israelite? A true Israelite because he was a believing Israelite. And we know that uh, uh, later on in Romans, we looked at Elijah. And Elijah, when he was under persecution, he went to the Lord and he said, I'm the only one left. Only me and Israel are believing. And God said to him, no, I have left myself a remnant. Was it five or 7,000? I always get mixed up. 5,000 people that have not bowed the knee to Baal. So that 5,000 and Elijah, they were true Israelites, believing Israelites, okay? And so in this, in the true is in the in this way of truly believing and saved people this isn't just believing jews but it's also believing gentiles as well you're part of spiritual israel and last week i went in detail about how later on in romans chapter um, 10 and 11 especially 11 that paul says that we gentile believers gentile simply means non-jewish We Gentile believers, we're like wild branches. And some of the branches on Israel, the nation and people of Israel, believing and unbelieving, some of the unbelieving branches were broken off. Do you remember that from last week? And the wild branches of the Gentiles were grafted on. So we become part of God's believing Israel. Of course, we're not part of of, of, of the nation of Israel because we're not born Israelites. You hear what I'm saying? So these are the two ways that we use the word Israel. And when we're talking about Israel and the promised land today, I'm speaking about the first way of using it. I'm speaking about the nation and people of Israel. Believers and unbelievers, I'm speaking about that. I am not speaking about spiritual Israel, okay? That's what I want to say right right at the beginning. Natural Israel, in other words. Natural Israel and the promised land. That's what we're focusing on today. And of course, this is um, a very important uh, thing to be looking at because we know that every day in the news, there's something about what's going on in Israel or some people call it Palestine, the Holy Land, so much of the world's attention is focused on a relatively tiny piece of land about the size of Wales, but it has such a tremendous influence on everything that's happening in the world. And so when we start to talk about Israel and land, immediately we're, we're entering into um, a big storm of, of passionate views on different sides and claims of ownership, and, and uh, I'm aware of that. And if we have the next slide, I just again want to remind you from the session last week, if you didn't see it, you can get it on the, um, uh, on the internet, about the three views we looked at 
regarding Israel and the church, because this is important when we speak about the promised land. We have the disp dispensationalist view of Israel and the church. And this basically says this, that in the Old Testament, God dealt with the nation of Israel. But then on the day of Pentecost, God pressed pause, the pause button on his dealings with the nation of Israel. He paused it. And now God is dealing with the church. He's really left Israel, that's on pause, and he's dealing with the church, believing Jews, believing Christians, and this is the age of the church. But sometime in the end times, and people normally say at, at, a, at the rapture, when the church is raptured, this view says that at the end of the times, when God's finished with the church and taken the church away, he will go back to the pause button and press play, and then he will deal with the covenant, the Old Testament covenant with Israel all over again until Israel is saved. So this first view, which has some good things to say, although I don't think it's the accurate view, tends to separate the church and Israel. And so this view would say that God is really interested in the church right now. He might be doing some things with Israel, but Israel will come later. The second view is the replacement view. And this view is important because many Christians that don't believe that the promised land has, has anything to do with Israel anymore are usually replacement view. And what does this view say? This view simply says this, that the church has replaced Israel. That when the church came along, God said, I am finished with Israel. I, you know, Israel is, is, is no more important to me than any other nation. All my plans and purposes that I had for Israel in the Old Testament, that's for the church today. And so the church becomes the spiritualized Israel. So the replacement view says God has absolutely finished with Israel. He's not interested with Israel anymore. Um, he's got no plans for Israel. The church has totally replaced Israel in God's view. Okay, And most people that believe this are, are usually, actually, very pro-Palestinian because they say, well, it's not about land, it's not about Israel, God's finished with Israel, so he has no purposes for Israel being in the land, so, you know, this is all a fuss about nothing. That's the replacement view. The church has totally and utterly replaced Israel in God's plans forever. Again, this view is not correct. And last week, we spent a lot of time building the view of the integrated view. The view that the church and Israel do have a relationship. That the church is important to the destiny of Israel. In the end times, it'll be us that bring, brings about the great end time revival where all Israel will be saved, according to Romans chapter 11. That there is a responsibility for the church to pray for Israel as a special part of God's people. Of course, we've been sent to all the nations of the world, haven't we? But there is a special place in the heart of God, and therefore in the heart of the church for the nation of Israel. Having said that, I want to make it plain that the nation of Israel is not saved by simply being the nation of Israel. The Jew has to believe as much as the Gentile has to believe. And sometimes in some extreme brands of pro-Israelite uh, Christianity, I have heard people teach that just because you're born an Israelite means that you're going to go to heaven. 
that somehow, if you're a Jewish person, somehow God will let you in through the side entrance. That is not the case. And this is important for our views in respect to the nation of Israel. Because listen, although Israel has a special purpose in the heart of God, the nation of Israel is as unchristian as any other nation. It's just a nation. It's as unchristian as any other nation. You hear what I'm saying? This is important, which means that the government of Israel can make bad decisions. And, and although Israel has a special place in the heart of God, that does not mean that it can't do no wrong. And sometimes with Christians, uh, you find those that are pro-Israel, I'm pro-Israel, but sometimes with some Christians, it's like Israel can do no wrong ever. And anything that Israel does as a government that's out of order is like just glossed over because they're God's special people. That is not the case. Israel needs, to be, needs a revival as much as any other nation. Israel is not saved. There's only a remnant of believing Israelites. And thank God for that. There'll always be a remnant of believing Israelites. And one day, God will pour out the end time revival on the whole of Israel. All Israel will be saved in the end times. But it's not right now. So let's re recognize that when we pray for Israel, and we thank God for Israel, that we also know that what Israel really needs is the Savior. Okay? So I want to make that plain as well in balance for when we come um, to the Scriptures. Uh, next slide, please. Where we are heading here is, is really twofold. And... Um, that is, God has two promises for the nation of Israel. Okay, remember, I'm, not, I'm using the word Israel as the nation of Israel, natural Israel that includes unbelieving Jews and Messianic Jews as well. And this is God's plan and promise to Israel, that first he will restore his people to their land, and then secondly, and of course more importantly, he will restore his people to himself. So I'm going to show you a few scriptures that show that the return of Israel to its land is really important in the fact that it's preparing them to return to their God. Next slide, please. We see this in Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall, come to it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. So can you see in that passage, in the place, in the land that it's talking about, the promised land, and I'll explain where that is, Israel it says, in the place that they return, they're going to return to Israel, to their land, and that happened relatively recently. And then in that place, it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. So there is a physical restoration to the land, and then more importantly, that will bring in a spiritual restoration of Israel to God. Just as Romans 11 said, all Israel 
will be saved. That's what's going to happen. That's what's on God's agenda. The last revival to take place before the return of Christ will be a revival amongst the Jews. And when Israel gets revived, imagine the effect of the world. That's where we're heading. Also, if we look at some passages in Isaiah chapter um, 45 and uh, verse 17 and then verse 25, Isaiah 45, it won't come up on the screen, verse 17 and 25, it says this, but Israel shall be saved of the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall never be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. That's Isaiah 45, 17, a promise of God's saving power coming to the nation of Israel. And then in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 25, it says, In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So there is a promise that one day all the descendants of Israel, that's Jacob, and it's speaking about the physical descendants, that one day all of them shall be justified. That means all of them that are there at the end time revival. It's so wonderful, God pouring out his spirit and saying, go into all the world and all the nations. Uh, but he's, he's saving his firstborn nation for last. Remember, God chose one man, Abraham, to bless all men. He chose one nation, Israel, to bless all nations. And the promise of the gospel to Abraham, who just, the, I think it's wonderful about Abraham because, of course, he's the father of the Jews, isn't he? But you know, he was also a Gentile. When God found Abraham, he was a pagan worshipping Gentile. The book of Joshua tells us that his father had idols and worshipped idols. So Abraham was a Gentile. But then he became the first, if I can use the word, Jew, the first Israelite. Well, Jacob would be called Israel. But isn't that wonderful that in Abraham we see the, the foundation, the roots of Jewishness, the roots of the nation of Israel, yet at the same time he was as Gentile as anyone before God found him. And so Israel will be justified. Romans chapter 11 verse 26, all Israel will be saved. Next, again it won't come up on your screen, but if we go to Jeremiah verse chapter 32 and verse 36. Jeremiah 32 and verse 36 following, it says this. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by famine and the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, in great wrath. And I will bring them back to this place and I will cause them to be, I will cause them to dwell safely. Then they shall, they shall be my people and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and for their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and I will not turn them away from doing good. But I will put my fear in their hearts, so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do good, and assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. 
And so here is a promise that God is going to bring his people back from the nations to their land. Now, this was not fulfilled fully in the return from Babylonian exile. Remember when God's people were 70 years in Babylon? But if we look at Nehemiah and Ezra, and I did a mini-series um, at the 7 o'clock service on the restoration of Israel and the restoration of God's plan in our times. And we know that only a very few came back from Babylon. It was a pitiful few that returned from Babylon under Nehemiah and Ezra. And actually, for many, many years, the majority of the Jewish people were found in, in Babylon for hundreds and hundreds of years. Most of them stayed in Babylon and multiplied, where you could find a lot of them also down in Alexandria in Egypt, where they also had fled and multiplied, so much so that when Jesus was alive, when he fled Israel, it was logical to go to where the Jews were down in Egypt. But this is not all the nations. This was limited to Babylon and also to Alexandria or Egypt. Um, and very few, as I've said, at that time ret returned to the land. So this was not fulfilled because this says, I'll gather them out of all countries. And also, it speaks about that when they return to the land, he will also have an everlasting covenant with them. And he will basically, they'll be my people and I will be my God. He will save them. Yes, I will rejoice over them and plant them in this land. So here again, we see a mix between the physical and the spiritual. And this is the point. Some people go and say, oh, in the Old Testament, forget all the physical promises of Israel and the land. They're unimportant. But we see in some of the passages I've read, and I'll read some more, that in the passages that, that I'm reading and we're looking at, that God is speaking spiritually and physically at the same time. He's speaking about his relationship with them, and he's linking it to his restoration of them in the land. So it's not spiritual or physical. We're finding that in the same breath, there is a, a talk of the land and Israel being restored to the land and Israel being restored spiritually to God. Again, what I'm trying to say is that um, there is a twofold restoration Firstly, of Israel to the land, and then secondly, after that, to, to, their, um, to their God. Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 19, speaks about this dual restoration. Jeremiah 50, and verse Jeremiah 50, verse 19. But I will, bring is, I will bring back Israel to his home, and he shall feed on Carmel and Bashan. His soul shall be satisfied on Mount Ephraim and Gilead. In those days and in that time, says the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought, and there shall be none. The sins of Judah, but they shall not be found. For I will pardon those whom I preserve, or actually the word there is reserve. So can you see again? A picture of restoration. Again, this is too big to be talking about the simple restoration from Babylon. That's, that's not, that, 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 that it may, it, it's linked to that, but it's not the primary purpose, because it's saying that also this restoration will bring spiritual restoration, forgiveness of sins, Israel will be saved. And that certainly didn't come to pass when uh, Israel was restored to, to Babylon. And so another picture of the twofold 
return. So the physical restoration of Israel to the promised land, that is not the final goal. The final goal is reconciliation between God and his people Israel, natural Israel. This is what this is all about. So it's not about us fighting for the land and making sure that Israel gets as much of the promised land as it can. That's not the goal. No, that's the sign that God is preparing to bring back his people into relationship with him. Now, in the... Uh, in the, uh, the book by Derek Prince, it has an appendix with 46 other places in the Old Testament where the promise of, give, of Israel and its land being from God can be found. And so I thought I would just read a few of those out so that you can see I'm not just picking a few, a few scriptures. 46 other places, but I'm just going to read a few here. Um, Genesis 26.3. To you, Isaac, and your descendants, I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. Genesis 50, verse 24. And Joseph said to his brethren, God will bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Exodus, sorry, that was Genesis 50, 24. Exodus 32, verse 13. Exodus 32, 13. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. Now, does God mean forever or does God mean forever? He's speaking about the land. Uh, Judges chapter 2 verse 1. Judges chapter 2 verse 1. Then the angel of the Lord said, I brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. So there is a covenant to the fathers regarding a portion of land, and the angel is saying that the Lord will never break that covenant of that land being theirs for, the, for them. 1 Chronicles Chapter 16, verse 15. 1 Chronicles 16, 15. Remember his covenant forever. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan. So that promise regarding the land is an everlasting covenant. It is a covenant for a thousand generations. It is a covenant that God has not forgotten. Ezekiel chapter 47 and 14. Ezekiel 47 14. You shall inherit the land equally with one another. For I raised my hand in an oath to give it to your fathers, and this land shall fall to you as an inheritance. Well, that's just a, a few of the 46 other places. And so we can see that the promise that God gave to natural Israel regarding the land wasn't a temporary promise, but it was an eternal promise. And you just can't ignore that. You can't ignore 
that God gave the portion of land. Now, what land was it? Well, last week or the week before I, I forget, next slide, I mentioned the land that was promised to Abraham. And behind me, you can see the map. And uh, the land that was promised to Abraham is all of that which is in the green, okay? So it's a massive portion of land, isn't it, that was promised to Abraham. And I discussed that with you and, and how that many people believe that when Jesus returns, the heavenly Jerusalem that will come down from earth will actually be thousands and thousands of miles wide and will actually fill in this whole area. But we're not really talking about that right now, although that land is promised to Abraham. It's focused a little bit more on the land of Canaan. And you can see behind me that yellow section. That is the land that was occupied, the most of, of the land that was occupied at any time by Israel, of the land of Canaan. And that was during the reign of Solomon. Okay? So when we're speaking about the promised land, we're usually talking about the land of Canaan. Next slide, please. And so if you look at the slide behind me, I hope this shows up. Yes, it does shows up there. You can see in this slide, this is Canaan. This is the present place of Israel, Palestine, the Holy Land. And the way that this is set up is you can see the portions that were given to the different tribes, Simeon and Judah and Reuben and Benjamin and Ephraim and Manasseh and Gad and Issachar and Zebulun and Asher and Naphtali and Manasseh right up the top, northern Israel and, and everything. So this is the land that we're talking about when we talk about Moses and the promised land, when we talk about Joshua taking the promised land, and we talk about the nation of Israel under David and then under Solomon. This is the area that we're talking about. And what I'm saying to you is that this area has been promised to the nation of Israel by God. These were the passages that we were speaking about, and there is more of them, but I read to you earlier. We've seen that these promises are linked to spiritual promises of restoration. So again, if I can remind you, because if you get this, it will help. God restores the natural Israel to the land, and the purpose of that is that they will be restored one day spiritually. So Israel returns to the land first. How much of the land? I don't know. But it returns to the land first, and then it's God's plan for them to return to him with the end-time revival. Now, you might think, well, there's other people that claim that land. How does God set these boundaries? We often speak about Israel and the promised land. But, you know, God has land for all peoples and all nations. We're just focusing specifically on the one that we find in the Bible. So, oh, actually, I forgot. Next slide, please. Um, I, I, I forgot this one, so I just want to read it to you. Psalm 105, verse 7 to 11, and then I'll come back to my point about all nations. Psalm 105, um, chapter 7, verse 11. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are all in the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac, 
and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. Okay? It's an everlasting covenant according to that. Now, the next, ver- next slide, please, Acts 17.26, shows us that it's not just Israel that God is concerned with, although Israel is a special nation. It's the chosen holy people, a nation to reach all nations. And after all, salvation is from the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. Salvation comes from the house of Israel. But here in Acts chapter 17, 26, we see that, that God is interested in other nations and peoples and their land. It says Acts 17, 26, and this is Stephen preaching. From, oh no, it isn't. It's Paul speaking. From one man... He made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Can you see that? Now, there's nothing in, there's nothing in the Bible, I don't think, maybe there is, where you can see God giving an everlasting promise to the British, whoever they are, they come from so many different nations, a melting pot, Saxon, Norman, whatever, you know, Viking, Celt. But you don't see sort of like to the French, I will give, you know, from Marseille to, I don't know, Dover, not Dover, um, Calais. You don't, you don't see that sort of eternal promise, do you, in the Bible? But at the same time, it shows that God understands the peoples and that God is involved in the land where people settles and how long they settle. And some peoples, of course, uh, lose their land and their empires, like the Roman Empire and the British Empire. But God allows that and is involved in that in some way. So all peoples, so the land that you come from, whatever nation you come from, that land is linked to your people. And God doesn't just say, well, you're a people, but he also allows a people to have a land. Sometimes he takes that land away from them. It was taken away from Israel. And no, we can't say that God has promised eternally that, that the British will have you know, Great Britain, because we can't find that in the Bible. But he did say that to Israel. So I say that so that we understand in context. Israel is a special people. There is a special purpose for Israel. One nation to reach all nations. Israel does have a land that's promised to them by God. And that land is the promised land, the land of Canaan. But also we find that the land of Canaan is not for Israelites and nobody else. So the Bible doesn't tell us that what we should therefore do is tell all the Arabs who have settled in Palestine, because you know there's no such thing as a Palestinian, do you know that? That there, there are Arabs that live in Palestine. It was the British that brought the name Palestine to the Holy Land, and it was the British that gave the name Palestinians. And so the phrase Palestinian is used very politically because people call themselves Palestinians. Because if they called themselves Arabs, well, people would say, why don't you go back to the 14 million square kilometers that the Arabs have in the Middle East? Do you know that? The Arabs' peoples have 14 million square kilometers in the Middle East. That's what they have, where Israel right now has 28,000 square kilometers. So if you spoke about Israelites and Arabs, 
you would say, oh, well, okay. But if you speak about Palestine, Palestinians, then immediately you think Palestine, Palestinians, well, that must be their nation. You see how it's used politically. But we're not saying that all the Arabs that are in Israel, Palestine, whatever you want to call it, should sort of like go off to the nations where they originally came. And remember, of course, the nation of Israel was won by Muslims by conquest, imperialism, imperialistic conquest. But the Bible says there are provision for peoples from other nations to live in the promised land. And we could look at the law and the prophet. But Ezekiel 47, 22 is a good one, I think. Ezekiel 47. Forty-seven, twenty-two. Well, let's start from verse 21. Ezekiel 47. Thus you shall divide this land, Canaan, among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. It shall be that you will divide it by lot as an inheritance for yourselves and for the strangers who dwell among you and who bear children among you, they shall be to you as native born among the children of Israel. They shall have an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And it shall be that in whatever tribe the stranger dwells, there you shall give him an inheritance, says the Lord your God. Isn't that amazing? So although God has promised the land of Canaan to Israel, he's also said, any strangers from different nations or ethnic groups want to settle with you, you don't just give them a place to settle, you embrace them. They become part of you, you welcome them. And there is a strong strand of God's teaching to the nation of Israel right there to Moses, although they were to get rid of all the idolatrous peoples so that they wouldn't share in the idolatry, there was always room, even in God's law, room for the stranger, for the people from another nation to be treated and to looked after, and even should they want to be welcomed into the nation. So we should always remember that as well. And again, I think sometimes um, one extreme, you know, you have the Christians that say Israel shouldn't be there because God's finished, he's not interested in land anymore which is incorrect, we've just seen these eternal covenants. Then on the other side, you do get people that should almost talk about driving out anybody that's ever lived in Israel that's not an Israelite. And so now, finally, we come to the, a modern-day slide of Israel, which is a very simplistic one, but it sort of gives you a picture. Israel there behind in the green, and uh, uh, the Palestinian area there, in the red, then up there in the Golan Heights area occupied by Israel. That's the present situation. And it would be interesting if I had time, and I, when we teach this at Bible school, we do look at the political history of the restoration of Israel because it's quite a remarkable thing to look at. And you do see God's, God's hand at work in that. But we don't have time um, to do that. But what we do see, and what I'd like to end on, is that Israel has been partitioned, partitioned. And um, in 1947, there was a partition 
Palestine, a Jewish area, and an Arab area. Now, I'd like to go to Joel chapter 3, verse 2 for my final scripture. In this introductory uh, teaching on Israel and the Promised Land, Joel 3. That speaks right into the present situation. Joel 3, verse 2. Or let's start from verse 1. Joel 3, verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. The word, modern word for divided up is partitioned, so I'll use it. They have also partitioned up my land. They have cast lots for my people. And so there we have a clear teaching that there is going to come a judgment one day on the nations who have partitioned the land that God has given to Israel. And it's commonly thought, and I believe, that this judgment that we're looking at in Joel chapter 3 is actually the judgment of the nations that we find in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Matthew 25, verse 31 speaks about when the Son of Man comes in glory with his angels, he will call all the nations together and he will judge them, and he will separate the sheep from the goats. So Joel is speaking about a judgment of the nations in regard to the land and nation of Israel. And Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, is speaking also about a judgment of the nations. I believe it's the same thing. And what sort of thing are these nations judged on? Well, they're judged on things like, you didn't visit me in prison, or you did visit me in prison. You gave me water, you didn't give me water. You clothed me, you didn't clothe me. And the people that did this are like, when did we visit you in prison? When did we clothe you? When did we? And Jesus says, as much as you did it for these, you did it for me. And so those that, that Jesus is judging aren't even aware of the parable. Not parable, sorry. Aren't even aware of this prophecy. They're like, because if, if, if it was us God was judging, we'd be, and he said, you didn't give me water, you didn't visit me. We go, oh, yeah, yeah, Matthew 25, verse 31. But these that he are judging when he returns, he's judging ignorant nations. And Derek Prince, for example, in his book, believes that those nations will be judged on, in, that, in Matthew 25, that God is judging those nations on how they dealt with Israel. Or it could be believing Israel in the end time church. So, that's just a brief. Has anybody got any quick questions of clarifications? We've got two minutes um, that, that you want to ask. Anyone? Don't have to ask. I haven't got much time, so. Yeah. About this particular topic, because um, we haven't got time to go into other things. So, about Israel and the promised land. S sorry? Ten Jews are not real Jews. Nine out of ten Jews are not real Jews. Well, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't have the answer for that. 
you'd, they'd have to look. I think genetically the Jews have always been a very close people, so I don't think that would be correct because they've, they, they've, in order to survive, even when they were displaced from their land, when they really began to disperse um, at, at the time of the destruction of the temple, they dispersed as a people group. And many of the nations that they went to persecuted them. If you find out, if you look at where the Jews are and have been the last hundred years, if you look at places like Eastern Europe, if you look at places like Poland, you can actually look at how the Jews were chased, especially in the Middle Ages, from one place to another. Many of them in, in, in the Roman days settled in Spain. And then there was tremendous persecution, and then they moved over to places like Poland. But they've always kept strongly um, together, and that's partly because their culture is very strongly bound to one another, but also because nations and cities kept putting them in ghettos and areas and saying, you stay there behind that wall and keep yourself to yourself. So I, I doubt that that's true on historical grounds, but thank you for the for the, for the question. Anybody else? Anyone else? Yeah, quickly over here. Quickly, Daniel, because... Uh, over here. Oh, all right, and then we'll come, we'll come over. Yeah, quick question. Yes, just a quick one. Um, with the advent of, in this century, of DNA testing, we now have the capacity to go and, uh, and find out who were the real Jews of which, and even which tribe and heritage, and which were the yeah. Koachina, sure. and so on. Um, and sure. we have the same thing that we can now trace nations that were displaced in the yeah. slave trade, find out what village they came from. Exactly. How does that help us and so, so that we can know now precisely who are real Jews and who are not? Yeah. Well, it doesn't, really help, it doesn't really help us because I'm not really interested. I mean, I'm not really interested in that. But what it, what it says is, can you come over? In, have you got a microphone there? What it says is this, God knows who his people are. That's the big thing. And so it's not for, you see, what's our role in this? Our role is not to do any of that. Our role is not to go and fight for the promised land. Let God do that. Let God sort out his promised land. I don't know how much of the promised land Israel will retain before the Lord comes back. I don't even know. Maybe they'll lose it and they'll come back again. I don't know. I'm not really interested in that. Israel is a special place in our hearts, as we saw last week in the relationship in Israel and the church. But, you know, we certainly don't have to do anything politically or, or fight for the land. That's God's business. We're really about the gospel. But um, it's a, that's a good point in answer to the question that was o over there that was helpful. Final question. Hi, yeah. Um, just in relation to what you said about um, there being a judgment on the nations who, in, in how they treat Israel. And I just need to, like, if you could clarify, because... On one hand, you're saying that there's, we don't need to do anything, but yet as a nation, how you treat Israel has a declared judgment. So in what way should you treat them, and what's the judgment? Okay, that's, that, that's a good point. Well, that's one opinion that that judgment is re in regard to Israel in Matthew 25. I'm not sure. I think that might be speaking about how believers, both Jewish and Christian, that's my view, are treated in the end times during the Antichrist and the persecution period. But Derek Prince's view is that that's specifically about the people of Israel. And in the end times, when I teach on the millennium, the 1,000-year rule of Christ, which is on the internet, I talk about 
that judgment of the nations, because there certainly is a judgment of the nations, whatever that's regard, there is a judgment of the nations, and what happens to those nations um, and, and those that remain, I speak about that in the millennium. But yes, what, what, what I'm saying is, is that sometimes uh, Christians are highly, highly political, as if God, the mandate that God has given us all depends on the land. And we can be too land-focused, and therefore we can have this anti-Arab type view that can be in some of the extreme church. It's anti-Arab. We're not anti-Arab. We're, we're pro-everybody. The gospel goes to all peoples. And so sometimes I think the danger is, is that when you're pro-Israel, you become too attached to Israel as a political nation and Israel as a, as a land. And although that, that is important, that is important and, uh, and everything, it's not the main thing that we should be focusing on. It's the salvation of the Jews and the end time revival. And so what I'm saying is God may call people to be more actively involved or minister to the nation or to or missionaries to go over there or even to stand up as a politician to defend Israel. I'm open to all of those particular callings that people might have, just as some people are called to Ghana or some people are called to Brazil. And so I'm not saying that there can't be a prophetic voice into that nation and everything like that. I'm open for all of those things. But what, I'm, what I am saying is, is that sometimes Christians that are so pro-Israel tend to become imbalanced. And like I said at the beginning, Israel can hardly do any wrong. And they forget that, that Israel needs saving as much as, uh, you know, Scotland. Well, I don't know why I picked Scotland, but or, or, any, or any other place. And so Israel, a lot of this, in, in my, a lot of this and our attitude towards Israel and how we should view Israel, most of that I dealt with last week when I was speaking about the right attitude to have to Israel because the Gentiles were getting a bit boastful, like, well, we're saved and you're not. God's finished with you. So this session that I'm teaching today on Israel and the Promised Land really comes out of the last session, which is really all about our relationship as Christians to Israel and how we should view them, respect them, thank God for them, and, and, and that, will, that will help us today. But that's a very good question. All right, well, um, we, will, we will close on that. Next week, we're going to have a look at the festivals of Israel and how they speak and are fulfilled in the New Testament and Christ's ministry. Thank you.